Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Frederick Law Olmsted, known as the father of American landscape architecture, made public parks an essential part of American life and forever changed our relationship with public open spaces. He was the co-designer of Central Park, head of the first Yosemite Commission, leader of the campaign to protect Niagara Falls, designer of U.S. Capitol grounds, and the list of his accomplishments goes on and on. He designed park systems in many other cities. Uh, to Olmsted, a park was both a work of art and a necessity for urban life. And uh, there's a new film out. It's uh, called Frederick Law Olmsted, Designing America. It aired last month on PBS. It's available on PBS.org. And we welcome in the uh, film's director, Lawrence Hott. Welcome to the program. Hi. Thank you for having me on. Let's uh, hear a bit from the trailer. So sort of set up some of the themes. And we'll get its very interesting life and, of course, the ongoing legacy of uh, Frederick Olmsted. This is uh, clip number one. What is it about an Olmsted landscape that makes people love them so much? Most folks, when they're walking through the park, they go, wow, this is a really pretty landscape. They have no idea that every nook, every cranny of these landscapes were laid out intentionally. This isn't a piece of natural landscape that someone has put a fence around. It's just the opposite. It's a stage set. If an Olmsted Park is a stage set, its actors play many parts. They make their entrances and their exits. For the past 150 years, people have loved Olmsted Parks, trashed them, fought over them, turned them into ballparks and highways. These theaters of life were the work of the most successful landscape architect who ever lived. Olmsted has a double legacy. On the one hand, he's a super pragmatist. He's a problem solver. At the same time, he's a dreamer. What his parks are all about is finding immensely practical solutions to the problem of building a dream in the middle of a city. Uh, Lawrence Hall, that's a, that's a wonderful quote. Building a dream in the middle of the city. Uh, and I wonder, first of all, um, born in 1822, Connecticut, uh, you talk about in the film, the, the, you know, sort of the atmosphere. What was Olmsted responding to with, uh, with building parkways in, in these urban areas? Well, at the time, Olmsted was coming of age. The country was coming of age. And the, we think of the big immigrant rushes happening maybe in the 1880s, 1890s, but really it happened a lot earlier than that. And that's why Boston and Hartford and New York City were growing so quickly. And those are the cities he was most familiar with. And he was responding to a great pressure uh, for open space. And there were really no public parks at the time. Uh, Olmsted had traveled extensively, and he had seen that in Europe that most of the parks were royal parks. Uh, they were private. And in New York City at the time, uh, most of the parks were private, too. Uh, so what he was responding to for the rest of his working life, once he became a, a park and landscape designer, was the need for a release valve for the teeming masses. And, uh, but his background is exactly not what people would think it was. Yeah, that's true. That's true. He, he went through a lot of different occupations. In fact, his family and friends were worried about him early on. 
You know, uh, we often talk to people who see the film, and they they take heart, particularly people who have uh, adolescent or or uh, children or or boys or girls in their early twenties, and they uh, they say, you know, now I feel a lot better about the, the <laughs> fact that my child has no direction in his or her life. Might, might end up being <laughs> successful. Yeah. <laughs> Olmstead doesn't really get a, a a job that pays him a surviving survivable wage until he's 36 years old. That's when he he becomes the superintendent of the Central Park in New York City, which was just a big plot of land. And he was hired to clear the land before there was any uh, idea of what it was actually going to look like. Before he was the superintendent, he had been a scientific farmer. He had been a uh, surveyor, a a sailor, a, a publisher, a correspondent. Uh, interestingly, he failed at just about everything he ever tried. He had the opposite of a Midas touch. And his his father is very active. In fact, his father tried to set him up in a few things. And uh, Frederick, you know, his father fail. his father was doting and really cared for him. He was uh, almost was clearly a, a, a bright guy. Uh, but it was his brother who was doing well. It was his brother who had all the friends at Yale, and it was his brother who was traveling around Europe. And, and Olmsted wanted to emulate his older brother John. Um, but when John died of tuberculosis and left a widow and three kids, uh, that's when Olmsted had to man up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he marries his brother's widow, uh, and that's when he is actually most desperate to, to get work. So he, he had an incentive all, throughout the rest of his, his mature working life that he had to earn money, and he's very lucky that he, that he fell into landscape. He really did fall into landscape architecture. That was not where he was heading. Mm. He had hoped to be a successful writer uh, by the time he was in his 30s. He uh, helped found the Nation magazine. He was the, the first, uh, what we call, foreign correspondent for the New York Times. Uh, the foreign country he was in was the, the south of the United States in the 1850s, which was such a foreign a territory for most northerners that the New York Times sent him down to the south to write upon about the conditions down there. Could you imagine that? Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, New York Times new new newspaper at this point and they sent him to this quote unquote foreign country. They wanted somebody who could have a somewhat open mind, I think. So they, they, he fit fit the bill. And he did have an open mind. He he called himself a, a reluctant abolitionist because he believed in freeing the slaves, but he didn't think they were ready. And he, later on, he realizes that the condescending attitude. He, he goes down south for several years, and he writes, I think, 54 articles that he sends back to the New York Times. And he's savvy enough to compile them into a book, uh, which is called The Cotton Kingdom. Uh, supposedly, I've heard this, I haven't, I haven't confirmed this, um, that this was the uh, inspiration for Malcolm X when he was in prison. Uh, that he actually was radicalized by Olmsted. Uh, Olmsted became radicalized when he was in the South because he, he was able to compare the economy of plantations that were run by white people with slaves versus large farms that were run uh, with wage earners, non-slave labor. And he saw that the, the farms with non-slave labor did much better. And he, he delved into us in, in great detail, and he looked at what, what slavery was doing, not only to the black population, but to the white population, making them lazy and making it a, a, a hard for them to actually earn an honest living. And he re- wrote back and reported on this. He became so angry about it uh, that he started shipping howitzers, you know, cannons, out to the Free Kansas Movement. He even bought guerrilla war manuals and underlined them 
saying this is what you should do, and sent it out to people like John Brown out in Kansas. Wow. Uh, one of the, the experts uh, that uh, is on camera in your film says that Olmsted uh, became one of the most important correspondents in that in that period. I guess if he'd never gone to the landscape for architecture, he wouldn't have been as famous, but he, he would have been known as, as an important correspondent of the Civil War, or, or pre-Civil he, War period. He was a reformer. Uh, he came out of the transcendental tradition, he knew all the transcendentalists. Some people consider him an early transcendentalist. Uh, he, he, he's not, you know, an Emerson or a Thoreau, but he knew them. Uh, he also uh, knew George Perkins Marsh and other people who started the, uh, the preservation movement. Um, Olmsted, I think, probably would have settled in as a, uh, a poor writer who eked out a living. His father always helped him out, uh, bailed him out. And in fact, one of the interesting things in the film is uh, when Sarah Cedar Miller, who is an historian and photographer with the Central Park Conservancy, mentions that uh, Olmsted was was kind of spoiled, kind of a spoiled brat, and he didn't take to authority very well because he never had come up against it before. His father had uh, let him do whatever he wanted, and would give him give him the money and say, "Okay, well, if you're not making it as a farmer, why don't you go travel around Europe with your brother?" Uh, you know, then I'll 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 bail you out a little bit if you if you uh, you know losing money on whatever publishing adventure you have, I'll help you out a little bit. Uh, they were very close. When his father died, Olmsted opened a drawer in his father's desk and found 20 years of clippings about Olmsted, and this is before Olmsted was really famous. Um, so they had a w- wonderful, loving relationship, um, but Olmsted really wasn't prepared for the real world until he uh, ended up. That, uh, banging heads uh, at Central Park, where the uh, Tammany Hall people were controlling the city, and uh, Olmsted didn't do very well with authority there. If you just joined us, we're talking with Lawrence Hott. He's director of a new film uh, out on uh, an important figure in American history, Frederick Law Olmsted, Designing America is the name of the film. It aired recently on PBS, and you can uh, view it uh, at PBS.org. Um, Lawrence Hott uh, joins us from, is it the New York area? No, I'm in uh, western Massachusetts. You're in Massachusetts. miles west of Boston. I'm in Northampton, Massachusetts. It's a beautiful college town area in the foothills of the Berkshires. Okay. Uh, so let's, uh, and by the way, you can join this conversation uh, at uh, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or our number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Frederick Law Olmsted. Um, well, before we, we get to some of the history of the Central Park, um, he essentially, along with Calvert Vox, his partner, invented the profession of landscape architecture, right? Invented the parkway um, and, and uh, many other accomplishments. You know, the, uh, so, so certain terms we're used to now that uh, Olmsted came up with. Parkway was not in common use. He was the one who first used it in, in Brooklyn. And then uh, the idea really uh, became popular after he created uh, what he called an integrated park system in Buffalo. Uh, buffalo is really, really important to this story. I, I know people hear the word buffalo, they think of Detroit and Pittsburgh, they think of these Rust Belt cities, but uh, Buffalo was uh, the eighth largest city in the United States when Olmsted gets there. Uh, he gets there in 1868. He, by now he's famous for having designed Central Park and Prospect Park in, in Brooklyn. And they ask him to come to Buffalo to choose the site. They give him three sites. They say, choose what, what do you think will be the best park? And they take him around for a day, and he says, you know, all three sites are great. Why don't we do 
all three of these parks. And then this is where his genius comes in. He says, let's connect them with this thing, this new thing called parkways. Uh, and what is, what is a parkway exactly? It's not just a road. Uh, it, you, you, when you see when you know what it is, it, it's got a big central road, and then there are these dividing uh, areas of, of grass, and then there's a service road on the side, or carriage road. And that allows people to get in and out of their houses without having to drive now with a car, but, but then with a carriage out onto you know, this, this throughway with a lot of busy traffic. And he lined them with, with uh, elm trees or maple trees, whatever was the right, right species at the time. In Buffalo, it was elms first. And uh, it made the entire city into a park. And that was really Olmsted's goal. Um, this is when he first becomes an urban planner. Uh, and that term wasn't in use then. But Olmsted began to see himself as something much bigger than a landscape architect. And landscape architecture is big enough. But Olmsted said, looking at how do people live and move around in a city. And he actually was thinking in terms of what makes people happy. Uh, and that's kind of a radical idea. Mm. Let's, uh, before we go to break, we'll go to break here soon, uh, let's uh, skip ahead. Um, eventually, he ends up uh, designing Park System in Louisville. This is later in his uh, his career. Let's hear. This is uh, this is number six. Uh, let's hear uh, a bit of uh, this. Growing up in in Louisville in the Depression, the parks were tremendously important to me. I rode down to Shawnee Park, played baseball there all summer. My family would sometimes take a picnic out to Iroquois Park or to Cherokee. Everybody was as poor as we were, so it wasn't that you noticed that you were poor. Everybody was in the same circumstances. Having those parks as a safety valve, a place that we could go to use our energy and run off that energy, that's all in my psyche. I believe in my bones that that should be available for everyone. 21st Century Parks is a Louisville-based organization that is building a 4,000-acre addition to Louisville's public park system at the edge of the city, resuscitating this old Olmstedian idea of building parks ahead of the growth of the city. We've acquired almost all the land we need, and we are currently building those parks and opening them. So over the next hundred years, as the city continues to grow, rather than growing in this kind of shapeless, formless way that many urban edges do, it will grow around this very intentional, integrated park system. It's not that we've come up with any new ideas. What we've done is, is reuse what Olmsted taught us, and the whole world ought to be doing that. I've got so much from Parks My self that I want all the people growing up in humble circumstances in this community to have the same opportunity that I had. And I hope that people in other communities look at this as a model and say, hey, if those hicks down in Louisville can do this, we can do it too. So this is a bringing it forward. And the gentleman there, I forget his name, uh, he, he, he grew up using the parks. They were important to him. Now he's trying to extend this. Right, that's David Jones. He's a founder of Humana, uh, the, you know, the large health organization. And his son, Dan Jones, who became a, a forester and a historian, and uh, is heading up this effort to create an Olmstedian-like park on 4,000 acres, uh, 20, 30 miles outside of Louisville. And Olmsted uh, gave them the idea that you buy up land. He would always advise a city, 
buy up land outside the city because the city's going to grow fast and grow up around that land. Get that land while it's cheap. And then people will buy up land near the park because uh, it'll be valuable land, more valuable, having a park as your front yard. Uh, and then the property taxes will be higher, and then you can tax those people and pay for the maintenance of the park. Uh, actually, that was a great idea. Uh, it still works, except for one thing. Uh, those taxes do not pay <laughs> nearly what is necessary to cover the cost of maintaining these parks. Um, so in Louisville, they, 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 you know, they're very forward-thinking. The 4,000 acres is much bigger than any, you know, it's, it's 10, 12, 15 times bigger than any Olmstead Park in existence. Um, but the idea, what has happened is uh, these cities like Buffalo, New York, Rochester, Louisville, they all have Olmstead Park conservancies. And these are public-private corporations that take money from the city, combine it with private donations, and then run the parks. And this solves an enormous problem because there's just not enough tax dollars to keep these parks up the way they were, they were meant to be kept up in the 19th century. And in fact, you have in the film, you, you have some scenes, very distressing, for, I think from the 1970s, of what happens if you don't keep up the parks. Uh, this is, you know, Central right. Park just, just went to the birds. Well, I should explain that um, the film is 60 minutes, uh, but there is 30, 30 minutes of bonus material on the website. Um, so if you were to go to the website, which is pbs.org slash WNED slash Frederick Law Olmsted slash home, I think if you just search for PBS and Frederick Law Olmsted Designing America, you'll find it. Um, there are seven uh, bonus videos, and one of them uh, is about what happened in Central Park in the 1970s when it was a crime scene and it was a joke. Uh, people had cartoons about it, and we all have you know, heard about the terrible things that were happening in Central Park. In 1980, the Central Park Conservancy is founded by uh, people who live in, in the neighborhood, which is a pretty fancy neighborhood, and they combine forces with the mayor, and they start this public-private partnership, which now has a $45 million a year annual budget. But there are these conservancies all around the country, uh, and they have learned a lot of lessons from Central Park. Um, there's another film uh, in those bonus videos. I think my favorite of them is about Atlanta, about the, the Druid Hills Linear Park. That's a, a sort of a narrow park in, Atl in Atlanta. And the uh, whole area was threatened with a major highway that was going to go through in the late 70s, early 80s. And the neighborhood got together. They did not know it was an Olmsted Park. It, had, it, it was in such bad shape. There was no signs. And one of the leaders of this movement... Uh, went down to the city hall, saw the name Olmstead, said, this is, sounds familiar, contacted the National Association of Olmstead Parks, and they connected her with Charlie Beveridge, who's uh, the uh, old man of the Olmstead Parks. He's in the film. And he said to them, let me show you what happened in Buffalo. Remember those parkways we were talking about a few minutes ago? Well, Robert Moses, the great uh, urban planner, <laughs> highway builder, came through and tore up one of those parkways, those beautiful parkways, the Humboldt Parkway, and built what's called the Kensington Expressway, a six-lane freeway right through the middle of Buffalo. And he, this guy, Charlie, Charlie Beveridge, takes this photograph, gives it to the people in Atlanta, and says, you don't want this to happen to your neighborhood. And they, they took that photograph and started going around with it, and they ended up fighting a 10- to 15-year battle, a battle in which at least 100 people were arrested. And these are people from all over the city. Um, and they eventually wore down the highway department till they till they dropped their plans. Uh, but it took over a decade for them to do that. 
So that's one of the bonus videos you can see on the website. Yeah, yeah, definitely. In fact, uh, when we come back, we'll hear a bit of a clip uh, to, telling part, oh, of that, good, good. Part, part of that story. Uh, and, and that brings us uh, you know, forward to, this happened, I think, in, what, the 1980s. But there are fights ongoing. Uh, this, is, this is an ongoing issue, of course. And uh, we're talking with Lawrence Hott, who uh, is a filmmaker. He's director of a new uh, film out, Frederick Law Olmsted, Designing America which is available on PBS.org. And as uh, Mr. Hott mentions, there are bonus videos which uh, uh, give you other aspects of the story. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Addison Bread in Logan. Open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m. Featuring a croque madame and croque monsieur made with sourdough bread, ham and cheese. Menu details at crumbbrothers.com. BBC's. BBC. Hello, I'm Ross Atkins. Welcome to World Have Your Say. Coming up on Outlook after the news, the Somali journalist who witnessed the murder of his boss. Hello, I'm Steve Evans. Welcome to Business Daily. Coming up, the big fight. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with NewsHour. The BBC is your gateway to the world, and this is your BBC station. Monday through Saturday afternoons at 3 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the father of American landscape architecture, Frederick Law Olmsted. He made public parks an essential part of American life, forever changed our relationship with public open spaces. He was the co-designer of Central Park, head of the First Yosemite Commission, leader of the campaign to protect Niagara Falls. The list goes on and on. Planner of Boston's Emerald Necklace of Green Space. There's a new film out, Frederick Law Olmsted, Designing America which aired recently on PBS, and you can see the film and the bonus videos at pbs.org. We're talking with the film's director, Lawrence Hott. Lawrence Hott was telling the story of what happened in Atlanta in the 1980s. Let's hear more about this. And uh, this, uh, this is uh, clip number uh, seven that we want to hear now um, with the story in Atlanta of the pictures and I took them around with me to show people what could happen. She showed us these pictures of this expressway that was horrible and the park was gone. And I think that really was a red flag to some people. We had a tent city where you had a lot of protests. People slept in that park and wouldn't move. Members of Caution were determined to stop today's advance of presidential parkway work. They chained themselves to tree trunks and climbed into the branches they came to save. But when the chainsaws came, the arrests came soon after. Five protesters were jailed, 12 trees were toppled. The big ones were next. The whole time that we were fighting this road, we kept having what we would call stays of execution. Various judges would stop it for a while and then it would be back on the table. It took the Atlanta protesters 10 years, dozens of arrests and court hearings, and millions of dollars. But in 1991, they finally and completely stopped the highway from ripping apart the Olmsted parks. The protests over the road were an amazing response and an indication of a community that recognized what they had in these Olmsted parks. They understood the integrated nature of the Olmsted design. 
You can't add something or subtract something and not end up with something less than the whole. They came together to say, it's not just that history matters, but that place matters. So this is an illustration of the fights that still go on today. How do you use these spaces? Is it transportation? And I think it was transportation, getting people from suburbs into Buffalo that destroyed some of these parkways. That's what they wanted to do. Some people wanted to do in Atlanta. The, the residents of that neighborhood fought back. Um, what What is it about the, this, this open space, this ideal of open space, Olmsteady and ideal that still motivates people? Well, one thing we might want to try to do is define what Olmsteadian means. That's a, one of the first questions I get. Um, and it is kind of hard to describe. Um, it's the idea that the, the open space is not just open space, and it's not just gardens. In fact, Olmsted really didn't like flower gardens at all. And some of these conservancies have to fight the tendency for people to donate a, uh, you know, the money to put in a flower bed. Uh, Olmsted wanted a surprise. He wanted a serpentine feeling so that you walk down a pathway and you would come to a bridge or an arch and you'd walk through it and you wouldn't know what was going to come next. It might open into a large field. It might go into some woods and then you come out to maybe a waterfall. And uh, something we haven't talked about yet was how engineered all of these places were. Um, They were mechanical marvels. Uh, Olmsted knew one thing coming into his job as superintendent of Central Park, he understood drainage, and he loved water. So he put water features in all of his parks, and he knew how to get the water in, and he knew how to get the water out. Uh, one thing that's always surprises people is that Central Park is completely engineered. And one of my favorite sections in the film is the comparison of Olmsted to Disney. Uh, and there's a woman, Faye Harwell, a landscape architect in the film, who says people bridle at the idea of comparing <laughs> Olmsted to Disney. That's true. In fact, uh, that struck me, too, and I prepared this clip. It's number four. Let's hear this. Okay. The idea of working within the geology and the natural systems of a place and creating this emerald necklace that knit and bound a community together, we had never seen anything like this. And I, when I say we, I don't mean Americans. I mean the world. Olmsted did work within natural systems, but his parks were not natural. He's a deep believer in artifice. Central Park, and people still don't credit this when you tell them about it, is an artificial design. It's every bit as artificial as Disney World is. Some people really bridle when you try to compare Olmsted to Disney. But Disney was a master at hiding engineering and hiding the nasty parts, the waste management, the traffic management. And Olmsted really did have that same kind of sense. Here come the brides, a whole platoon of them, ready for the first mass wedding at Brooklyn's Prospect Park. He was very good at creating stage sets for human life. Taking of marriage vows. Now maybe they'll have to change the song to Get me to the park on time. The public park was the landscape that made Olmsted's name. But by age 70... So that's a great achievement of Olmsted. It seems natural, but it's not natural. In fact, he, he saw this as, as a work of art, right? It, it, it is artificial. 
Yes, I mean, he he sets up a stage set, as he said in the trailer in the beginning. Uh, there's a great line in the film where Sarah Cedar Miller, the uh, park historian for Central Park, says that people take out their cameras and they're so proud that they've composed such a great photograph, but actually Olmsted composed it for them because he sets up these frames. Wherever you look is almost a, a perfect painting. And I've had that experience. When I was in Central Park, um, it was almost too easy. Uh, wherever you pointed your camera, there was something beautiful to look at, and that happens in most of the Olmsted parks. Um, and one of the problems with the Olmsted parks is they have so much open space in them that it's easy to say, well, we can put something in there. We can put a ball field in there, or tennis courts, or even a hospital. And that's happened in all these parks. Uh, we have a section, one of those bonus videos, is specifically about the intrusions. Um, but if you want to go back to the Disney idea, at the end of Olmsted's career, he has tapped to do something totally uncharacteristic, and that's to be the landscape architect for the Chicago World's Fair, the World's Columbian Exposition of 1893. And he's basically planning what they call the White City. He didn't do the buildings, which were done by a variety of architects, and Burnham is the most famous. But he does these lagoons, and he, and he, and he puts in uh, uh, these boats, and he even puts in the Nina, the Pinta, and Santa Maria. Uh, and it's, it's just a cacophony of, of, of weird, funny things with lights everywhere. And it's very, Olmst it's very unlike Olmsted, except for the water feature. But he says, you know, there's a, there's a time and a, and a place for everything. But he does one thing that is very Olmsteadian. He insists that in the middle of all this craziness, the, 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 in fact, away from the midway, which is the term he invented. We all say it all the time now about fairs, but away from the midway, he put in the, what he called the wooded island. And he didn't want any structures in there. But the park people wanted one structure. So he allowed the Japanese to put their pavilion in there. It wasn't really a pavilion. It was a Japanese temple with a Japanese garden. And if you go to Chicago today, there's only two things that remain from the World's Fair. There's the Science and Industry Building and, I mean, the Arts, the arts Building, which is now a science museum, and the wooded garden with the Japanese garden in it. And you can actually stand at the garden and, and see the other building that remains. But that's it. And Olmsted wanted that, that island, the literal island, of peace and tranquility in the middle of this wild and, and raucous fair. Hmm. Well, going back to the, this idea of uh, comparison to Disney, I wonder what you, what you make of this. I, I imagine it's controversial and people don't like it because of what Disney stands for. And it you know, stands for uh, artifice to the max, I guess, an artificial right. experience, although, you know, a good experience, I suppose. Uh, and if you're in a park, it, it's it's supposed to be something different, I think. Well, the difference between Olmsted and Disney is that Disney, uh, that Olmsted tries to, per, to um, retain what was natural about the landscape and work with it. So he will bring in a waterfall, he'll put it in a ravine, he'll... he'll He'll put in a copse or woods if necessary, but if not, he'll leave it the way it is. So he, he, he errs on the side of the natural state of the land. And he's also, his idea for people when they come to his parks is for them to feel better about themselves, to have a place to contemplate nature. He feels that it will make them happy. He feels it will make them more democratic. 
and he writes volumes and volumes and volumes about this. Um, you know, somebody once asked me, did, did Olmsted ever write down what he was thinking about this? <laughs> did he ever? Uh, there, are, there are nine volumes of Olmsted papers, and there's more coming. I mean, there's a big, you know, like six, seven hundred pages each, each volume. Uh, Olmsted just poured it all out, his philosophy about what he thought the meaning of having these natural spaces were. And he, it's beyond parks. You know, Olmsted did suburbs. He did cemeteries. He did institutions. He did six um, what were then called uh, hospitals for the insane, psychiatric hospitals. And he insisted on citing them in, uh, in such a way that they got more sunlight and that there were, there were open windows so that there would be more relaxation for the patients. The most famous one is in Buffalo, and it was designed by his friend Henry Hobson Richardson, a famous architect. So Olmsted also collaborated. Uh, we, you know, we mentioned briefly Calvert Vaux. Uh, Calvert Vaux is the architect that, that actually brought Olmsted into doing this. And Olmsted really always worked in concert with architects. He didn't do the buildings, he didn't design the buildings, but he said this building has to be placed properly so that it feels right in the landscape. And I think that's very different than the way Disney behaved. Mm-hmm. And the, this idea, his idea that the, the, the contemplating nature, getting out in these open spaces would make people more democratic, uh, that, that, tar- that makes you think of Jefferson, harkens back to Jefferson. Well, uh, you know, I don't know if Jefferson was a preservationist in the way that, that Olmsted was. Um, but a lot of people, were, you know, Olmsted was inspired by the, by the American landscape. Uh, and in fact, he, he, one of his biggest jobs that he did at exactly the same time as uh, the Chicago World's Fair was he designed uh, the uh, George Vanderbilt estate, uh, Biltmore, in North Carolina. Uh, and he advised the uh, Vanderbilt family to, to practice what was then called scientific forestry uh, on, that, on that land. And, and that 80,000 acres has been turned into the Pisgah National Forest, uh, which is consistent with, with Olmsted's history because he was one of the first preservationists in the United States. He, he was asked when he's out uh, in, he's a gold miner at one point in his life. This is after he was already, had already designed Central Park and after he had been uh, the head of the uh, Sanitary Commission, the precursor, precursor to the Red Cross. He needed some money. He was working as a as a the head of a, a gold mine in Mariposa, California, uh, but he does have a reputation already. So he's tapped to be on the Yosemite Commission, and he's prescient. He looks forward and he says, "We have to preserve this place, and we also have to be able to bring tourists in." Just like John Muir said a few years later, "We have to put roads in here and bring tourists in because they don't see it, they won't want to preserve it, they won't know about it." And he, he writes the, the, really the, one, of the, one of the first treatises on why we should preserve wilderness space in America. And then later, when he's working in Buffalo, he's taken to Niagara Falls, and he's absolutely disgusted by what he sees there. There are factories lining the banks of Niagara Falls. You have to pay to see the falls. There are hucksters everywhere. And he starts a 15-year battle. He brings in public relations experts. And he lobbies the state legislature until he convinces them to to set aside the New York uh, Niagara Parks reservation. And then he, of course, gives himself the job to mm-hmm. do the design work. Yeah. And he brings back his old friend, Calvert Vaux, and they design the, the park at Niagara Falls. And this is going to sound strange, but this is actually the first time land in the United States is set aside and preserved, 1885. 
And this encourages the, the uh, New York State to put into their constitution the Forever Wild Clause in the 1890s, which sets aside the Adirondacks, which is uh, the largest wilderness area in the United States, three times the size of Yellowstone. Um, I, I imagine some of your listeners don't, don't know that. The biggest wilderness area is in the east, five hours north of New York City. Uh, but that's the first time a state constitution has a clause that says that wilderness land is going to be protected forever. And it's Olmsted's son, Frederick Olmsted Jr., who becomes the consultant to the Park Service in 1916. And he writes the rationale for preservation. So Olmsted is really an important character in American history. He leads directly to the national park system. We're going to take another break. When we come back, we have an email from uh, Steve in Beaver Dam, Arizona. Uh, before moving out west, he lived in Manhattan, and he has reflections on Central Park. We'll read that email. We'll talk a little bit more about Niagara Falls and uh, the successful public relations campaign and more of this fascinating story of the f- father of landscape architecture in America uh, who made uh, public open spaces, public parks, essential. We see them as essential now. That uh, certainly wasn't the case um, before Frederick Law Olmsted. The film is Frederick Law Olmsted, Designing America. The director is Lawrence Hott. He's our guest for the hour. More following the break. This is Lloyd Berenson, director of the Bear River Health Department. We get asked if it's safe to exercise on unhealthy air days. Exercise is important for a happy, healthy life. While it is best to avoid too much time outside, when PM 2.5 levels are elevated, going for a walk or other light exercise is still worth your time. However, switching up your exercise routine with some indoor exercises such as a treadmill is a safer choice on unhealthy air days. For those with health problems such as asthma or lung or heart disease, it is even more important to avoid the unhealthy air. It is important for everyone to know their body. And if you notice health problems or symptoms on these days, change your routine. Remember to keep exercising and adjust as needed. The Bear River Health Department provided this content in response to Utah Public Radio listener questions about air pollution and health for our community engagement reporting project. To join our public insight network and have a say in what we report, go to upr.org and click on Become a Source. The staff of Utah Public Radio acknowledges Menden resident Lou Gay on her retirement from the greenhouse in Logan. For 27 years, Lou shared her artistic talent and knowledge of plants, showed commitment to her patrons, and was a mentor to her co-workers in what has become fondly known as Lou's House. Congratulations, Lou Gay, on your recent retirement. Frederick Law Olmsted is known as the father of American landscape architecture. He made public parks an essential part of American life, forever changed our relationship with public open spaces. He was co-designer of Central Park, head of the first Yosemite Commission, leader of the campaign to protect Niagara Falls. The list goes on and on. He designed park systems in many cities. And uh, there's a new film outlining his life and impact, Frederick Law Olmsted, Designing America which aired recently on PBS and is available to you at pps.org. There are several bonus videos as well, which are very interesting, uh, there at the website. And uh, we're talking with the film's director, Lawrence Hott, on the program today. So here is the email from Steve. 
He uh, moved several years ago from New York City to uh, out west here. He lives uh, near the Utah border in uh, Beaver Dam, Arizona. He says, before I moved to the UPR listening area, I lived at 444 Central Park West in a building overlooking what is called the Great Hill in Upper, that is Northern Central Park. I don't know whether Olmsted intended it this way, probably he did, but the Upper Park has a very distinct feel. Whereas most of the park tends to be crowded and full of tourists and has a planned, manicured, almost European feel to it, the Upper Park is rugged and feels like a genuine wilderness. There are far fewer tourists or visitors of any kind there. Indeed, on some days, you're more likely to see a red-tailed hawk than an out-of-towner in Upper Central Park. It felt a bit like my private park within a park. That's what Steve writes. Uh, Your reaction, uh, Mr. Hunt? He's absolutely right. Uh, The north end of the park was designed to feel like the Adirondacks, which we just talked about. Olmsted wrote about this. He believed that the people in New York City who were oppressed, working long hours, living in these tenement apartment buildings, had every right to enjoy the outdoors as much as the wealthy people who had these great camps, these homes up in the wilderness. So he designed the northern end of the park, particularly on the east side, uh, but the whole northern end, to be much more like a wilderness area with waterfalls and ravines and paths um, there's also the air called the Ramble, which isn't quite so north, uh, far north, but it's also like that where you can actually get lost very easily. And there are these large outcroppings, some of which were the original uh, granite that was there, but or the, what's called the schist. Um, but some of it he moved. He moved rocks around to, uh, to, to suit his aesthetic ideals, but he wanted the parts of the park to feel more rugged. Uh, and a lot of Olmsted parks have this feeling where you can go from a uh, semi-manicured open field to an area uh, that could be in the, in the woods somewhere. He was very influenced by his youth, where his father would take him on these silent rides up through the Connecticut River Valley. Um, this is the area which is uh, where the Hudson School River painters uh, painted the Oxbow area of the Connecticut River Valley. And he wanted uh, these places to look like that. Uh, he got a rude awakening when he came out west, though. Uh, and he realized that you couldn't design things the same way out west as you could in the east. Um, and he started to learn a lot, a lot more about uh, the native plants of the west. And when he designed in the west, he, he learned rapidly that you, you can't do it the same way. Uh, he was a, a great believer in using native plants. He was way ahead of his, t- of his time with, uh, with you know, what's called now zeroscaping. Um, so Olmsted was, uh, was adaptable. Um, one of the things you might not get from uh, listening to this conversation is how often Olmsted was fired. Though. Um, yeah, that's he didn't true. get along with all of his clients. <laughs> he had an interesting personality. Uh, he told people what he, what he, he thought. Um, I can give you an ex- a really great example. Uh, when he was asked by the uh, head of Cornell, when Cornell was a brand-new university, um, what to do uh, about the school grounds, and he wrote them and he said, if the university is to be a great success, if you're going to have a heavy, steady growth and draw out the affections, the gratitude, the patriotism, the benevolence of noble men and women, besides its founders like you, then your proposed line of buildings will be another monument of short-sightedness, inconsideration, and complacency, like those of Yale and Amherst. And he goes on to say, I will lay you a wager payable on the other side of the river sticks. In other words, when we're <laughs> both dead that within two centuries, some of your buildings will be demolished. Yours very truly, Frederick Law Olmsted. So he didn't mince words. 
Yeah, and he, he was he had a streak of melancholy. I think uh, he was, and he he fought constantly with 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 you know people that he worked with. You know, uh, you, it makes me wonder how did he do so well in business if he fought with people and got fired so often. And I found the answer uh, in a letter that he wrote to his son when the son was five years old. And this gave me an insight into how well Olmsted could get along with people, how personal personal he could be. And in fact, in his relationship with Calvert Vaux, Olmsted was the front man. Calvert Vaux was another genius in the background. He, he could draw, and Olmsted wasn't a, wasn't a good artist. Uh, but Olmsted must have been very charming at times when he wasn't depressed and, and alone in a dark room for three months, which happened to him once. But this is really wonderful letter where he writes uh, Frederick Law Olmsted Jr., uh, whose first name originally named was Henry, and then he called him Harry. Uh, must have done something to his head to change his name four times. Um, but the kid's on vacation when he's five years old with his mother, and Olmsted writes him and says, the cats keep coming into the yard, six of them every day, and the quiz, the dog drives them out. But the kid, Harry, has asked for, for quiz to be sent to him, and he says, if I should send quiz to you to drive the cows away from the rhubarb, he would not be here to drive the cats out of the yard. If six cats should keep coming into the yard every day and not go out in a week, there would be 42 of them, and in a month, 180. And before you came back next November, uh, there would be 1,260. Half of them, at least, would have kittens. Then we'd have 5,000. He goes on. He said, a pile of 5,000 cats and kittens in front of my window would make my office so dark I should not be able to write in it. If I can't work, if I can't see, I can't write. If I don't work, I wouldn't have any money. If I don't have any money, I couldn't send any to Plymouth to pay your fare back. And then you and I would not ever see each other anymore. <laughs> no, sir, I can't spare a quiz, and you will have to watch the cows yourself and drive them off and raise your rhubarb without the dog. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see, you know, Olmsted, he had a, an ability to, to connect with people. Yeah. Um, and he was dogged. And I also noticed in his papers that he undercharged people. Uh, he would charge them a small amount of money to do a design to come out and consult with them. Uh, and I think that he, you know, that probably was a, a way, it's like a lost leader, you know, <laughs> get them in. And then uh, once he was famous, it went a little more easily for him, but not always. Um, in, in the film, there's uh, one section about how the city of Tacoma fires him because they say his plans look like watermelons and sweet potatoes and onions. And, you know, they don't want, they don't want their streets shaped like that. They don't, they don't have the vision to see that that's uh, the way a lot of the uh, garden suburbs of America would eventually look. Yeah, the, this uh, Tacoma could have ended up uh, much, much different. I wonder, we're nearing the end of the conversation, I wonder, um, I, I've been thinking about how maybe some of these ideas apply to Utah, where we are here, and I'm I'm thinking, you know, we have the great uh, advantage and, and wonderful privilege, I guess, of many of us living right next to nature. You know, five minutes, I can be up a canyon somewhere. Um, so our fights on, uh, over, you know, public spaces are how pristine should it be and how do we use uh, this space? And I wonder if you see any parallels there with, with what at least became of Olmsted Sparks. Oh, absolutely. Um you know, the, there's a real difference. Uh, Olmsted was really designing for crowded places. Um, he did some other big major places, and, and he believed in setting aside things. But he, you know, people think of him as putting a, a park in the city, 
But he, he, he tried to turn the paradigm on its head and said, let's, let's put the city in the park. Let's make the whole place feel like a park. And I, I think that you can think about that in terms of uh, the way national parks are managed. Um, there's been a movement for a long time to tame the use of cars and, and the expansion of roads in national parks. And I think Olmsted, although he believed in getting people into the parks, uh, he would have said, let's, let's use uh, different forms of transportation. Um, and so I think in, in a lot of the West, there's been this debate. Uh, in fact, even 30 years ago, people were talking about uh, permitting people to go into the park, a lottery to see who get to use the park. Uh, you know, the, the national parks were the, the ones that are most popular. I don't know how Olmsted would would feel about that. Um, he seemed to be flexible and pliable and would, would do the appropriate thing for each location. So I think he probably would be open to whatever was appropriate for, the, for those areas. The, the West, uh, for him, was very different territory, as we mentioned, uh, in terms of what, what should be planted somewhere. But also I think it was very different in terms of the pressure on the land. Mm-hmm. We'll have to leave it there. Um, we've been talking with Lawrence Hott. Uh, he is director of a new film, Frederick Law Olmsted, Designing America. And uh, that's available along with several very interesting bonus videos at pbs.org. Mr. Hott, a pleasure. Very interesting discussion. Uh, thank you so much, and I really enjoy talking with you. And tomorrow on the program, we're going to have another uh, one of our uh, periodic book shows. We're going to ask you to email us or uh, tweet us, go on Facebook, to tell us what you have been reading and to uh, suggest a reading list. And we'll have some booksellers on as well. That's tomorrow on the program. In the meantime, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto-Casper. This week, we have a look at what it will really take to feed 9 billion people with National Geographic magazine. We take on do-it-yourself flavored boozes and liqueurs for summer drinks, and we learn how to make the most of a summer trip to Italy. That's the Splendid Table from APM. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. Utah Streams offer excellent year-round fishing opportunities for every level of angler. According to the Department of Natural Resources, Utah's waters are home to approximately 80 different species of fish, but it is the trout fishing that is the biggest attraction for fishermen. Of the trout species swimming in our rivers and lakes, the cutthroat trout is a local favorite and the only trout native to the state. The cutthroat trout represents the most diverse trout species in North America. They are freshwater fish of the Salmonidae family that live in cold, clear streams and lakes across the West. The cutthroat trout are distinguished from other trout species by the two red slashes prominently striping the lower jaw after which they are named. All cutthroat trout share a single common ancestor, but historic population isolation gave rise to 14 subspecies, each endemic to their own geographic region and river drainage. There are four subspecies that exist in Utah. Only three of these are considered native to the state, the Colorado River cutthroat, the Yellowstone cutthroat, and Utah's state fish, the Bonneville cutthroat. In Utah, the Colorado River cutthroat trout can be found in some of the smaller streams and tributaries of the Green River, the San Juan River, and the Colorado River drainages. Their bright coloration and posterior black spotting distinguish these cutthroats from others.
Pure native Yellowstone cutthroat trout are present in small numbers in the streams of the north slope of the Raft River Mountains in northwestern Utah. However, this species is more widely distributed across the state due to extensive stocking. Yellowstone cutthroat trout can be differentiated by large-sized black spots concentrated near the tail and their gold, gray, and copper tones. The Bonneville cutthroat trout evolved in the Bonneville Basin of Utah, Wyoming, Idaho, and Nevada. Its primary ancestors were a population of lake-dwelling cutthroat trout living in the late Pleistocene-aged Lake Bonneville. The Bonneville cutthroat trout is less vividly colored and has spots that are more sparsely and evenly distributed across the body than other cutthroats. Thought to be extinct in the 1970s, populations of the Bonneville cutthroat trout are now estimated to exist in around 35% of their historic range, including the nearby Weber and Provo rivers. Like so many species, the native cutthroat trout of Utah are under significant pressure due to drought, habitat loss, disease, and competition with non-native species. Though only the Colorado River trout cutthroat is included in the Utah State Sensitive Species List, conservation of all of Utah's native cutthroat populations is a focal point for state wildlife resource managers. For Wild About Utah, I'm Anna Bankson of Park City. Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. Paula Poundstone is one of the leading women of comedy today. You hear her on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Now you can see her perform and meet her in person. Join Utah Public Radio with Cache Valley Center for the Arts for an evening of comedy and a private reception with Paula Poundstone on Saturday, January 17th at the Ellen Eccles Theater in Logan. This special package offer includes premium seating and a post-performance gelato bar reception. Information and tickets are at upr.org or call 435 797 9507. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.